Hello, guys, and welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Benno. We are lucky enough today to be joined by former Carlton and Melbourne star Brock McLean. Brock, how are you going, mate? Uh, I'm good, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me, mate. And uh, yeah, apologies, it's taken so long to get around to doing this, but uh, yeah, COVID's thrown up a few curveballs along the way. But I'm happy to be here. No, mate, no problems at all. I think that's the growing pattern as we get back into it for the new season, is that a lot of people are just starting to find their feet again in 2022. And hopefully we can, uh, we can get a few more things rolling back to normal. Um, tell us a bit, yeah, tell us a bit what, what's been going on with you, mate. Obviously, out of spot for a bit now, but what, what are you up to and what are you doing? Uh, yeah, the, the last two months seems like it's dragged on for 20 years, to be honest. Um, but we, uh, we had a baby on Christmas Day, 2020. So that's probably the awesome. most um, exciting news, you know, that's, that's come out of COVID um, for us. And, you know, COVID was really challenging um, at times, you know, sort of being locked down and, you know, I was sort of, you know, in between and, and going between different jobs, you know, really trying to find, you know, I had something lined up to get back into the, sort of the world of finance and sort of COVID hit. So that got put on hold. And then, so it was quite stressful at times. I could go for periods of, you know, not working for, for a month or a few weeks and, you know, you just got a new baby. But I think, you know, the big silver lining for me was that um, I got to spend so much more time at home um, with Bonnie um, you know, at that early stage where fathers, you know, usually, generally don't get that opportunity to spend that type of time, that amount of time with their kids, given that, you know, they're usually the main breadwinner, they're off working, they're off providing. Um, so while it was stressful and it was worrying and it was, you know, sort of hard at times, the silver lining and the thing that, you know, I continually focused on was the amount of time that I got to spend with her. And the outcome from that has been we just have the most amazing little relationship and connection. Um, and it's something that I just, you know, it's, that is just so special to me. So that's been a really good experience, um, you know, through COVID for me and um, probably more so on the job front. Um, I've just started a new gig um, with a company called Enosis Therapeutics. So uh, a bit of a, to try and sort of snap it up in a, sum it up in a few sentences. We are at the intersection of virtual reality and psychedelics. So the co-founders, um, Agneshka Pakula and Prasant Puspanathan, or Dr. Prash for short. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. He's a clinician. Um, he's had an interest in psychedelics for eight years. Agneshka is a scientist from Poland who developed the VR protocols. Those two come together. And it's basically to be used um, as a bolt-on or as an adjunct to psychedelic assisted therapy to, to improve the overall therapeutic uh, outcome. So it's, uh, it's a rabbit hole I've been down for probably the best part of three years, um, especially from the angle of, of mental health uh, and you know, my lived experiences with that from when I finished footy and, and reading about psychedelics and the potential that they have to shift the paradigm in, in how we treat the mentally unwell is something that's just, beca it's become my next passion project. And it's, it's probably the first time since I finished footy that I felt truly connected and immersed in something. Yeah. Awesome. I think, yeah, you say that feeling truly immersed in something. I think footy does that too. And a few people we've spoken on the show have spoken about looking for that, that next thing that um they can, sometimes it comes really quickly and sometimes it doesn't, but it's awesome to hear that you found it and awesome to hear that you've got to spend some time, with your baby girl, I think um, I look at, you know, COVID, it's obviously been unideal for, for a lot of us, but yeah, looking at that bright side, I mean, that's time that you just won't be able to replace with anything in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
it's been probably one of the the things that I've learned, you know, through my you know, through my time after I've, I've left footy is, is trying to reframe things when, you know, the situation might be a negative one or, you know, things might, you might feel like the world's against you a little bit or you might be feeling crap, just reframing the way, you know, you look at something or really trying to identify, you know, sort of one positive amongst all the negatives. And it just changes your outlook. It just changes your mindset and it just changes, has a major effect on, on the way that you feel. So being able to find that silver lining um, you know, as it's commonly referred to, is 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 has been a big uh, you know part of, of me getting better and and being able to have a much more positive outlook on life than you know say three or four years ago. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, mate. Um, we'll dive in, into the footy stuff to start with. Um, you spent time at Melbourne and Carlton, who over your time were both in the spotlight, probably for reasons you wouldn't want to be um, over your journey. Um, but starting with the days, obviously you got there and they were. I mean, they weren't the, the juggernaut we see today. They were quite uh, quite unhappily up the other end of the ladder. How did you find walking in, a young 18-year-old, and you walk into a system that, you know, was a shell of what it should have been? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't know any different, really, having not been another AFL system. But how did you find that? What was that like walking in as a, as a youngster? Uh, yeah, I still remember the first day pretty clearly. I was 17. Uh, I was a little bit hungover from the, uh, the weekend festivities. Um, yeah, we certainly uh, uh, tipped a few jars in on, on Saturday night and early Sunday with the family and friends. You know, it was a very special moment, um, you know, for all of us. Um, so I was really nervous. And, you know, I, I walked uh, into the change rooms at, at Sandringham Footy Ground and uh, where Melbourne trained for pre-season and just went straight to the corner. And I think I just pretended I was looking for something in my bag for probably 45 to 50 minutes. And, you know, so players would come up, you know, ask how I was and, you know, introduce themselves or look up and you know, have a chat to them. And then it was back into the bag. So, I mean, in, in terms of, you know, facilities and resources that the club had, I mean, I, I didn't really, you know, I had nothing really else to compare it to. I came from a, a TAC Cup club where, you know, the Calder Cannons facilities was at Coburg and they weren't anything flash either. So, you know, none of that was relevant or, you know, made any difference to me whatsoever. I just, you know, I was, uh, felt like I was at the start of a, a long football journey that I'd been building towards for, for some time. And, um, it wasn't probably until, you know, I got further into my journey and, or, you know, my career and, and then going to Carlton and comparing what the facility's like, you know, the new ones at Carlton compared to Melbourne. And I remember even Robbie Flower making the comment um, when he came down to the junction over one day, he came into the gym and he made the comment that some of the weights that we had in there at the time were, were around when he was using the facilities at Junction Oval. So like, you know, 20 to 25, you know, years old, the, the dumbbells are nearly falling apart. And, I mean, the state of the Junction Oval was, was pretty bad. There were, there were dead possums in the roof and, you know, where the exterminators and that couldn't get to them. The maggots dropping out of the ceiling. And every now and again, you'd come into the change rooms and you'd, you'd walk on the carpet and you'd notice it was a bit spongy and a bit wet. And that was because the sewage, the sewage pipes had blocked up and they, overflowed through sort of drains in the showers and drains in the toilet. So, you know, you, when you, you think, you know, professional football club or professional AFL club, you think, oh, yeah, that'd be great. They've all got great facilities. But um, unfortunately, at the time, that wasn't the case um, for Melbourne. But, you know, it, uh, you know it, it certainly didn't affect the players' um, 
uh, you know, attitudes towards training or attitudes towards footy club. It was just like, oh, well, this is a situation. This has got to deal with, you know, we just, just get on with it. It doesn't sort of affect, you know, it didn't really affect the way that we went out and trained. And, um, you know, we, we still had, I think we had to buy our own footies um, back then. So at the start of pre-season, yeah, you had to pay a hundred bucks for a footy. You had your number on it and you had to bring that to every session as well. So it's sort of, you know, from that was, God, that was, 19 years ago now so yeah the club's come a long long way <laughs> since then but yeah you, you sort of get a feel of what the situation was like um, you know when I first got there did it you said the club's come a long way so when they when they won the flag obviously a long way a long time from when you had started there but was there an element of you kind of feeling like you know the path had started way back when you know they're now got world-class facilities they came from Casey Stadium to Amy Park. How to get on Amy Park? Was it only yourself that just felt like the, you know your group, the guys that had started in the Junction Oval doing the hard yards? You know, there's an element of of paving the way to some sort of extent. I mean, yeah, I, I certainly think so. I mean, you know, probably one thing that comes to mind is the um, the debt demolition um, dinner that that sort of Steins in and that board embarked on and you know, bringing the club together and, and trying to unite, you know, all the supporters and the players and the board and the, and the club and, and to try not be as, I guess, as fractured as it was maybe prior to that. Um, so maybe, you know, that was something as well that, you know, that we were a part of um, that really got the ball rolling um, in terms of, you know, focusing on getting the club in a position where, you know, it could, it could thrive off field, which, you know, gave the club, the best opportunity to perform um, on field. I mean, you know, a lot happened in between sort of, I think that was 2008, you know, a lot happened in between then and, um, you know, sort of the winning the flag. Um, but yeah, there were, I think there were certain things that, you know, while I was there that I was a part of that certainly contributed to, um, I guess, the focus of, of getting the club into a, a financially viable position where it, where it could compete off field and on field with, you know, some of the bigger juggernauts in the competition. And speaking of like some of those things that can contribute to success, obviously early draft picks help with that. You were at the club at a time where maybe early draft picks were seen as, you know, a priority and something they were after. And you might, you weren't too shy and saying that you felt that that was kind of the case. Um, from someone who's on the inside, I mean, what does that, what did that look like to you? What, happened that made you, you know, think, oh, are we, are we doing our best? You know, is winning the be all end all or was there anything you saw or heard or just observed that made you feel that way? Um, yeah, look, it can really, you know, what went on can really fracture, you know, a footy club, especially if the, the directive to, to not put the team in the best position to win games is coming from the top. You know, it's not coming, you know, from the coach or it's coming from people above. The coach, so I mean, you can get a whole different group of, of people at the footy club on different pages. You know, it's it sort of just goes against everything that you're taught or everything that you are um, as a competitor, um, and and all for a, a couple of draft picks. And um, in the end, you know, that I think Tom Scully left two years later, and, and unfortunately for Jack Trengrove, he just had a horrid run with injuries, which is which is not his fault, but. You know, that was sort of the, the result of, you know, um, as I said, not putting the, the, the team in the best best position to win games. And, you know, it really um, affected the culture of the footy club for some time. And I think that's the biggest lesson out of everything is, um, you know, culture trumps talent or, you know, high draft picks or, or any type of, um, you know, 
talented player because, you know, as we've seen time and time again, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, you can have the most talented player on your list, but if he's a bit of a, a cancer, you know, within your footy club or, you know, if what you've done to get that player has gone against the fabric of your footy club and, and, and created a really poor culture, then it, it sets the club back for a number of years. And, and that's what we saw, unfortunately, with the Ds. And, you know, it took a long time for them to sort of, you know, uh, get back, uh, on the, I guess, on the road to redemption. And I think that, you know, that really started to happen when we saw Paul Roos, um, you know, come on board with the footy club. And, you know, it was no sort of, um, surprise, you know, to see that the club really turn around when he took in, you know, uh, when he took it in, took over. And uh, Simon Goodwin, you know, worked under him and learned from probably one of the best modern day coaches uh, that we'd seen up until that point. Did, so as you said, like it fractures the culture and obviously, you know, it had an impact on yourself. You wouldn't have been fond of paying around that, as you can imagine. When you, when you did ask for your trade, did that come into play? Was that kind of something you thought you just didn't want to be a part of or? Uh, no, look, I mean, yeah, sort of the, the experiences were, were quite difficult, you know, because, you know, I'd had a couple of chats to Dean Bailey about it, you know, at the time. And I could see he was really in an uncomfortable situation. He didn't want to be doing, you know, what sort of what we were doing. And, you know, but he was like, you know, we've got to toe the party line. We've got to appear to be on one page. And, you know, you're sort of, you know, you're taking that message back to the players. and But even then, like a lot of the, you know, sort of players at the time were like, no, nah, this is crap you know what are we doing this for you know and, and really unhappy about it so trying to appease them and, and trying to i wouldn't say lie about it all but you know trying to keep you know the, the the message the same was was a really difficult challenge but you know at the time i just felt like i felt like my career had stalled a little bit and i felt like it would have been best for both parties um just to have a fresh start or just to you know cut ties and um you know, looking back now, I knew that my unhappiness and how I felt at the time didn't stem because of the Melbourne Footy Club, didn't stem because of anything that I did. I was just really unhappy and really unwell within myself, but I was just too ignorant and too stubborn to admit that. And I was, you know, I didn't want to, you know, put my hand up and say, say that I was struggling, you know, because I, I felt like that would have been a huge sign of weakness um, on my behalf. So, you know... It, uh, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a challenging and, and difficult time, but, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change anything about it or I don't regret anything. You, you mentioned like ignorance to, you know, being unwell and stuff like that, which comes with being young and maybe a tad immature. Did you, was there an element of kind of when you got the, when you got the trade thinking, oh, that'll, that'll fix it. Like I'll, I'll get out of Melbourne, I'll go to Carlton and that'll fix it. I'll be right. We'll win games and yeah. it'll fix it all. Yeah. Looking for that quick fix. Yeah, I, th I think it was just like, oh, yeah, the change of scenery is going to make, you know, the world of difference. Um, and, you know, as anyone knows, like, you can, you can never run from your problems. A new environment, a change of scenery, a new country, a new city, whatever the case is, um, if you're really unsettled and unhappy and unhealthy within yourself, no sort of external factors or external location is going to change how you feel. Um, internally and you know unfortunately for me I, I learned I learned that the, the sort of the very hard way um, you know but I think in the long run it's really helped me 
you know, it's molded me into the person that I am today and really strengthened my resolve. And, and as I said, I don't regret or I don't, I wouldn't change anything about it because, you know, it's every decision that I've made in my life has brought me to where I am now. And I'm very happy, um, you know, where I am now. I'm, you know, I've, a, I've, I've got my dream job and, but more importantly, you know, I've got a, a beautiful partner who, who loves me and, um, you know, a baby girl who I, you know, just think the world of and a, Another another little girl on the way um, in July as well. So, mate, life's, you know, fantastic for me. So if I was to go back and say, you know, I regret that or I'd change that, then, you know, I wouldn't be in the position where I am now. No, 100%, man. Congratulations on the on the next yeah. one. The way. That's awesome news. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, you, you, get to, you get to Carlton and obviously club's in a bit of a different spot than Melbourne, maybe a bit further ahead. It, it didn't exactly click immediately for you at Carlton through mainly, I think, injury. You had a few injury troubles early on. Was there an element of, we just spoke about, you know, maybe thinking, oh, change the scenery work, and then you get, you know, a few knockbacks and it doesn't work scenery. Was there an element where you start to go, oh, for fuck's sake, like, what, yeah. what can I do? Or, I mean, how did yeah. you know yeah. it not working immediately? Yeah, well, I mean... I think at the end of the day, the injuries that I copped that year were, were, were my own fault. You know, I was, I was a very all or nothing person um, when I played footy. So, you know, when I told Melbourne that, um, you know, that I wanted to be traded, you know, I think I, I think I had about maybe two weeks off that off season. And then I just went, you know, sort of hell for leather. And I was just running Ks and Ks and Ks three or four times a week. I was in the gym three or four times a week. Like I was so determined and headstrong about making this fresh start. You know, I, I really just wanted to send a message, um, you know, to the footy world, um, probably to Melbourne at the time, probably to myself that, you know, even though I'd had a lean year in 09, that I was still a good player and, you know, that I was a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, I, I, I won the time trial you know, you know, on day one and, you know, I really, you know, the, Brett Ratton came up to me at the time, mate. He said, mate, you couldn't have impressed the coaches more, you know, with that. We, we can see you really mean business. And, you know, to me, that was vindication that I've been doing the right thing. But I think it got to about round, round four or five. And, you know, I started to get all these niggles and those niggles turned into more serious things. And I started, you know, getting problems with my knees, problems with my ankles. Um, you know, I had a couple of ITV releases, which are commonly marathon runners injuries. And, you know, that was no surprise given how many Ks I've been doing in the off season. So, um, and I, I took that, I took that really hard. Um, you know, not being able to play, being at a new club, not being able to get out there and, and show what I could do really took a, really took a toll on me. And, you know, a, a lot of the things that I learned about, you know, myself post-career around, you know, my self-worth was, you know, without footy, I, I had no, I felt unworthy as a person. So while I wasn't playing, I felt completely worthless. So uh, to try and counteract that or to try and deal with that, I started sort of drinking, um, you know, drinking had been a pretty sort of big part of my family's and uh, culture, you know, uh, during my upbringing. You know, the, most of the, my uncles and the people within my sort of social network or my family social network generally drank to excess. And, and I grew up thinking that was sort of the norm. So 
Um, so I started doing that, you know, for, it, it helped for a period of time. It helped me escape my problems and it helped me black out. And, you know, it had helped me, you know, temporarily forget about my footy issues. But um, the, the byproduct of that was, um, you know, I became quite good at drinking and I became quite popular, you know, when I went out, you know, with the boys or with my mates and I, you know, became a bit of a, you know, you know someone who could, you know, my mates could rev up and, and get me to do things, you know, stupid shit, you know, when I was on the piss. And, and that gave me validation. That actually gave me worth. I was popular when I was doing that. I felt worthy when I was doing that. So while I didn't have footy, you know, that became my source of self-worth. So it was this really like just toxic type of environment or toxic type of, you know, cycle for me that just, you know, gradually just got worse and worse and worse and I eventually hit rock bottom, you know, nine years later in 2019. But, you know, it, it, it probably really started, um, you know, probably around 07 and 08 when I, you know, got a few injuries at the D's, uh, but then things really got worse, probably 2010 and 2011 when I was at Carlton. You mentioned rock bottom there. I mean, what, 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 is, that, what is that for you? What did that look like for you and how did you kind of recognise it? Yeah, I mean, it got to a point um, where I I remember it was it was just after my birthday in two thousand and nineteen, and I just woke up one Monday and I was just I was absolutely nowhere. I, I felt like I was sort of catatonic and unresponsive. I just you know I, I felt like I was you know sort of dead inside, you know, and. Um, you know, I was sick of feeling the way that I was and I was sick of doing the things that I was doing. And, you know, um, I felt like the diagnoses that I'd had up until that point with my mental health wasn't exactly on point, wasn't exactly the right description of, of what I was feeling. Um, and I just lost, I just lost so much zest, you know, for life and, um, you know, I, I felt like, you know, the previous couple of years I'd been up and down and all over the shop and I honestly felt like there was no real hope or no real positive outlook um, for me. So that was probably my, my rock bottom moment. But, you know, fortunately for me, I went and saw my psychiatrist and, you know, I spoke about, um, you know, the, the diagnoses that I'd had up until that point and, um, you know, we spoke openly and honestly about, you know, what I, what I was feeling at times and, you know, I guess my history of, of behaviour and, and history of feelings and, um, you know, we, we came to a, um, a different conclusion. There was, you know, different medication, different diagnosis, but I, I made the, the, um, the decision right there and then I was say, you know, I'm going to just quit what I'm doing. I was putting so much pressure on myself to succeed, you know, in my, in my career, my, my finance career, because I was like, you know, I, I quickly wanted to ascend off the, I guess, the bottom of the food chain, um, again, because my self-worth was, was tied to that. And I just, I was like, right, what's the, what's the actual source of my issues? You know, what's the actual, you know, the heart of the problem? It was my issues around self-worth. So I was like, I'm just going to quit my job and I don't care how long it takes, I'm just going to get to the actual core um of my issues so i started doing a lot of work around you know sort of my self-worth my self-empathy my self-compassion i wasn't putting any pressure on me um 
you know, to succeed in, in a vocational sense or in the corporate world. You know, I jumped on the tools of the mates business just, just casually, which turned out to be probably one of the best things I ever did for myself because it, it properly taught me about work-life balance. Whereas, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to work, I'd do my work, I'd come home, and then I wouldn't think about work for a second. I didn't think about work until I was there. The next day where previously I'd, I'd come home after work and I'd be checking emails and I'd be, you know, trying to do more study or more reading or really trying to, you know, fast track myself to, to develop. And, you know, I just gave myself no work life balance. So learning, you know, how to switch off and how to realize and understand that it was like, you know, work will be there tomorrow. It doesn't matter how much I do tonight. It doesn't matter how much I think about it. It's going to be there tomorrow. So, um, and that really just set myself on the pathway to, you know, to getting better. Um, and then, you know, amongst of uh, a whole different raft of things, you know, I took a real holistic approach, you know, I think, it, you know, a couple of years later, you know, um, you know, I was in a really good spot and, you know, fast forward to, to where I am today. And as I said before, I'm the, the happiest and healthiest I've, I've ever been. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I hit proper rock bottom that I could allow my, myself to, to sort of ascend up, I guess, the recovery mountain. Yeah, awesome, Matt. It's awesome to hear you, uh, you could address that and, and recognise it. I think it takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage. Um, just ducking back to footy quickly, obviously, at the Blues, 2011 for the Carlton Footy Club, seemed like a pretty productive year. I think fifth, miss out on a prelim by kick. All seems to be going well. 2012... 3-0 and premiership favourites. It's it's really starting to hum now. And then it, it, it kind of falls away. And I think, you know, there's a lot of injuries in that year and a lot of other things that came. But ultimately, you know, Brett Ratton ends up getting the sack. What was that 2012 year, you know, like? It's, it's At one point, you were premiership favourites. All of a sudden, you yeah. missed the eight and Brett Ratton's gone. I mean, take us through that year and then, you know, the end of the year, kind of where you and the playing group sat on what has turned out to be a pretty controversial decision. Mm. Look, it was very bittersweet for me because um, 2011 was awful again. I mean, I, I finally got my body right, but, you know, I just couldn't break in to the seniors, you know, and I was I was absolutely dominating in the VFL. I was best on ground every week. I think I won the Northern Blues best and fairest by, you know, a long way. And um, I actually thought at that point in my, my career that you know, I'd one year to go on my contract, I actually thought I was done. You know, I thought it was it was over for me. So, you know, I got a chance again, maybe round four against Essendon. And I came in, I played um, okay. I didn't play great, but I certainly wasn't the worst player, but I got dropped. And there were all these sorts of emotions running through my head. And, um, you know, I, that was like, that's it, I'm done. They're not giving me another chance. And then Paul, Paul Williams gave me some feedback that I'll never, ever forget. Um, who was our midfield coach at the time. And it's probably the thing that really turned my year around at that point. He got me in his office and he said, he said, how do you think, how do you think you went? I said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with that game. I didn't think I was the worst. And he, he said, he said, mate, I, I think you look soft. And um, I sat there and I, I actually got quite emotional about it because that was something that I just really prided myself on, just being a hard in and under player and that, you know, blue collar, you know, that was, you know, all, all I really knew. So for him to say that to me, and he was someone who I deeply admired and deeply respected. I'd spent time with him at Melbourne. That really cut deep for me. And from then on, I was like, I'm, no one's ever going to call me soft. 
again, unfortunately for me, I got, uh, I think I got my chance again, maybe in round eight, round nine. And yeah, I never, I never looked back from there. And I think, yeah, I think I ended up finishing fourth in the best and fairest that year. So from a personal perspective, it was a year of redemption. You know, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, but from a club perspective, yeah, it was, it was awful. I mean, again, we didn't have the worst year by any stretch of the means, but you know, we had a lot of injuries. We had a lot of interruption. We didn't have our best playing outfit out on the field, you know, uh, continually. So there's a lot of chopping and changing. Um, and yeah, it just turned out to be, you know, not the worst of years, but you know, not the greatest of either. And, you know, for Brett to get the sack and for the board to make uh, the rash decision that they did, again, set off a chain of decisions that set the club back, you know, a number of years um, because of, you know, who they, who they appointed the coach, who we all felt at the time as players because of from what we'd seen at a distance and what we understood about the guy. We thought it was a great, great decision, but... The more we got into it, the more it went along, the more it was just like, God, nah, this has turned out to be an absolute nightmare. So, yeah, I, I really felt for Brett, and, um, you know, but it, again, it was just a really poor decision by the board at the time and there was no due diligence done, no homework done. It was just a rash decision made and they appointed someone who they thought on the face of it would, would, would do the club good, but he set the club back, you know, for five or 10 years. Yeah, we've had, I've had a, uh, Nick Graham on this, on this podcast earlier in the year and he said something similar and we've obviously heard Murph come out as well. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have said, yeah, it, it seemed like the right appointment at, at the time. At what, how early on did you guys kind of look, start looking around the theatre room and think, oh, what the, like, what the fuck have we done here? Like, did it come early or was it, you know, was it like, did, he, did he come in and try and make statements? Actually, or? Nah, look, I remember... We were in Arizona at a pre-season training camp and he got us in this room and I can't remember exactly what he said, but he gave one of the best motivational speeches I've ever heard in my life. And we've all walked out and gone, wow, that was absolutely sort of mind-blowing. But then as, you know, we got further into footy and further into footy, I just, you know, just some of the things that, you know, he would say to players, you know, during a game, you know, at halftime and... Um, just felt like he was probably, you know, the, the wrong person for, for, the, for the group we had and he probably felt like he was there, um, you know, for the wrong reasons. And, you know, I personally, you know, I, I think the guy's an absolute legend, you know, of the game, you know, uh, multiple premiership winner as a player and as a coach, you know, revolutionised the game in was probably 2010, you know, when he, when he started doing the... The, the high amount of interchange changes, which I think he learned from the NHL when he went over there to study the, the hockey. And so, I mean, the guy in, in the context of, of the footy is an, an absolute living legend. And, you know, as I said, this is nothing personal about the guy. Just at the time and our experiences, he just, it wasn't the right fit um, for the footy club. And, you know, it was, it was quite clear by the end of it that the, the club saw it that way as well. But by, by then, you know, the damage was already done because the amount of players that he got rid of and the amount of players that, that were brought in that were just weren't really up to scratch of, of sort of being, you know, at a, at a, on an AFL list or an AFL level, it just, you know, that um, put the club just in a really bad position moving forward. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, hopefully the, the worst of it is done and we've lost coming on board now. But, yeah, it was just, a, it wasn't the, probably the greatest period of, 
um, you know, for the for the Carlton Footy Club and you know, a lot of the players that I spoke to after I left said was, yeah, they almost felt like they wish they'd come with me. <laughs> um, you mentioned like that he said some things, you know, to players and whether it be halftime that kind of shocked mm. you. Um, as much as you can, what, what were some of those things or is there anything that stands out where you were kind of like taken about and thinking, oh, what, like what's happening here? Yeah, look, I, I, I probably prefer not to say them, you know, publicly just to give, you know, I, I feel like what's said, you know, in the change room should, should stay there. Yeah. But I felt like what he said and how he said it to, to the players that he said it to, um, I'm really not sure how he was expecting those players to respond you know, after that, I was like, because, you know, it was just like, what do you expect him to do from that? Like, surely his confidence is absolutely shot now. You know, that might have worked, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago. Like, we've seen just this huge um, generational change with how players respond to certain motivational techniques in the days of yelling and berating and really embarrassing a player in the hope that it would spur them on or, you know, it would give them a rocket, a well and truly guy like, you know, sort of, I think that was around the time when that, that sort of that culture or the way that players responded to feedback and responded to coaching styles really started to evolve. Um, and, you know, where we see that today, I mean, there's no way you could dream of saying anything like that to a player um, these days because I reckon some of them might not even come out of the change rooms uh, at halftime, you know, based on what he said. Um, you mentioned also there, you know, his reasoning behind, mixed reasoning behind coming. And I think a few people have said as much that he, they don't feel like he was at Carlton for the right reasons. Um, you know, was there any, anything like, did that come up? Did that come once you left the system? When you were in there, were there indications where you thought, oh, I'm not sure, you know, he's here to get the best out of the club or... Mm. Um, it, like just a few it, we felt like well, I, sort of the, the feeling that I got from you know some of the comments that he'd made about you know maybe Collingwood and some you know what some players had said about the culture after Mick had left and maybe about Eddie that he'd still had a bit of a you know a, a grudge you know an axe to grind so um, it just felt like he might have been doing it to stick it up Collingwood or, you know, to say to Andy McGuire, say, listen, you know, I'm still coaching. You brought in this, you know, ridiculous uh, transition or director of football or, you know, whatever the whatever the term was used. The time, it just felt like he was quite, you know, bitter about that all and that he was coming to Carlton, the coach, you know, to spite sort of, you know, Collingwood or, or Eddie or, or Bucks. I mean, his intentions... You know, only he can truly answer, but that's what it felt like. And I think a lot of players would sort of agree, you know, with that, that, you know, as the year went on and, you know, as more comments that he made, it was just like, yeah, this really doesn't feel right from that perspective. Um, in, in his first year, to mix credit, you, you, the Blues made finals and won, won a final in dubious circumstances, but you got there and you won one. You, you played an interesting role in that day that maybe gets... Overlooked somewhat. You were you were in the side, and then you weren't. And Nick Diagon comes in and plays the game of a lifetime, and it's now forever known to Carlton fans as Nick Diagon Day. But what was what was your your perspective of that day? You know, how close were you to to getting up? Look, I I just couldn't. I felt like I felt like I could have got through the game, but I didn't want to risk my quad just blowing up and putting the 
putting the team down one play, I, I really don't think that would have sat well um, on my conscience. But I mean, I was, I was, I was devastated, absolutely devastated because you know I got to Melbourne, I'd got a taste of finals 0405 in my first and second year. I didn't really play well in those games, and then 06. Um, you know, I'd always been a, a big game finals player, you know, before I came to the AFL. So that really stung at me. And then, you know, the 06 elimination final against St Kilda and, um, you know, probably was, was probably my best game I'd ever played um, up until that point. Um, you know, that was really the last time we played Fremantle the following week. That was the last time that I played finals. Like it was seven or eight years since I played, so I was so excited. It was Richmond at the G, 80 or 90,000 expected, you know, even though we got there because, you know, by default, because of what happened with Essendon, I didn't care, you know, it was back to finals footy. So, you know, while I was at the game, you know, I was so happy for the boys and so happy for the club. But, you know, when I got home, I just I just broke down. I just fell into an absolute heap. And, um, you know, because I felt like I wasn't going to get up, you know, um, for the following week, but you know, I did, and you know, we ended up getting done by ten goals, um, or something like that against Sydney. So that was my last real experience um, of finals footy. But I mean, just being at the game was 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 pretty electric, um, and it was a. I specifically remember, you know, sort of Richmond supporters getting pretty arrogant, getting pretty cocky early on when they were up by you know three or four goals, and then. You know, the, the game just completely got flipped on its head. And, you know, as you said, you know, Nick Dijkendijk, I think three or four. And, um, you know, it was really pivotal pivotal in some big pressure moments. And, you know, in the end, I remember the Carlton supporters just absolutely berating and giving it to all the Richmond supporters, especially as they were leaving, um, you know, because they'd, uh, they remember what they were doing earlier on in the game when Richmond were up. Yeah, I think... I think, you know, for Carlton fans, obviously success has been barren for a while now, but I think that day is still very much looked upon as, I, I think you were a generation of Carlton fan, that'll be probably their grand final at the moment. And mm. things for us for Blues fans, that changes soon, but it's always a, a great day for them to look back on, I'm sure. Mm. Um, you sp- like when Ewan out of the side and you spend a bit of time with Carlton out trying to break in, as you said earlier, Nick Dong, I mean, a prime example of the guy that comes in for you and he dominates, plays unbelievable. Is there a, how hard is it kind of when you're watching that, a part of you thinking, geez, I hope, I hope the boys go well, but I, I hope, you know, X or Y don't go too well because that's where I'm at. How do you, how do you find balancing that? Um, I mean, like I, I got along really well with Nick Dye and Nick Dye and I loved him as a player and I loved him as a bloke. And, you know, so I was absolutely, you know, happy for him. You never want to detract from anyone else's, you know, performance or, you know, how they go. You never wish anyone ill will. But I just, you know, from my perspective, I felt like, well, I was in the side in the first place for good reason. So I still expect myself to be in the side, you know, next week if I'm right or, um, you know, whenever I'd, I'd come back. So I guess that was my feeling, um, you know, towards it. Maybe you were a bit younger, you know, when, you, when you're just itching to play a game and you just want to break into an AFL side and you want to get your debut game, you might think, oh, you know, I hope, you know, someone, not anyone specific, but maybe, you know, one or two players don't play well, which will give you the opportunity. But, you know, as you get older, you get more mature and you, you start to, you know, uh, grasp the concept of you know it's it is all about you know the team and you never wanted to you know uh, wish anyone ill will or, or harm especially someone from your own team that um, you know it was just about I felt confident enough that you know they picked me in the first place that I'd be picked again the following week you know if I was available. 
Yeah, fair enough, man. Fair enough. Um, then after that, obviously, you know, you were you were cut. I think it was the end of twenty fourteen. By, yeah. by the Blues, which I think was quite a shock for everyone in the footy world. I think, and yourself, you've said. I mean, what, what was what was that like? You, you played, you had a pretty good year, and like obviously the, the club was kind of looking to move, move in the, a bit more of a youthful demographic. But what was were you shocked? Were you surprised? Because it seemed like you know that you'd done enough to earn at least one, two years. Oh yeah, definitely shocked. You know, because my exit meeting, I was told, you know. Uh, that you know, I was a required player. They were going to give me another contract, you know, go on your end season trip. You know, I travelled at the end of, in every off season. And, you know, by the time I'd come back, there'd be a contract waiting for me. So, so you know, I went away fully, you know, um, under the impression that I was a required player the next year. And, you know, my manager called me when I was in, in uh, Denmark, in Copenhagen, and said, listen, mate, I'm a bit worried. The contract hasn't come through yet. Um... Uh, you know, maybe get on the front foot and, and give the club a call. So I gave Andy McKay a call, and you know, we ended up having having it out, having some pretty sort of intense and, and harsh words, you know, with each other. And that was nothing personal against Andy. I, li- I liked him as a bloke, but it was just more so of the because of the situation and, and what was unfolding. And I think in the end, I, to- I told him to go fuck himself. And then, um, you know, I got. Uh, notified a few days later that you know that um, you know that my delisting was was finalised and you know I think the I think the reason they gave me was um, uh, that they got you know more players in through the trade period you know a couple of players like myself I think Mark Wiley was one of them from GWS and you know there wasn't a spot for me so but look I, to be honest I really felt like because of you know what I was doing off field um, at the time you know by then I was you know, consistently going out on vendors during during the year, you know, in the off-season, in the pre-season. I really feel like that was probably, you know, that I think in the end that probably just said enough's enough. You know, we're, we're trying to build a, a bit of a, a culture here or, you know, he might be a bit of a, you know, a bad example for the younger players, So, which is, you know, well and truly fair enough, you know, because as I've said, and, and documented before I wasn't in a very good place at the time and the, and the choices that I was making to try and deal with those things were, were well and truly the wrong ones. And, you know, I got uh, no one to blame, you know, but myself uh, for that. But, you know, as I said, I don't regret any of it, you know, because every decision that I've made, is, as I said, has led me to, has led me to now. Yeah, awesome, Matt. Um, Tuck, just going back a bit as well, um, another thing you, you, you've come out and said you had was a battle with bulimia. Now, it's one that obviously not many people would expect AFL players to have an issue with. I mean, you look at AFL players and they're fit and they're firing. and But you do look at some of the criticism that can come the way of, quote-unquote, bigger-bodied players. And you were one of those that did tend to, at times, cop it. If, if, you, if you had a, a cork and were running slightly not at top speed, you seem to be heavily criticised for your body shape. I mean, how much of an impact did outside noise have on that? Or was it more an internal battle that started? Yeah, look... I think the perception around me was that because I was slow, that I was, you know, overweight, but I was bigger. And it's like, it's, it's quite, um, quite, you know, bemusing for me because I was consistently in the 30s or 40s, you know, with my skin folds. I was always a very lean player. I was slow just because of my, you know, I'd had a number of injuries over the year, but, you know, my family wasn't blessed with foot speed. I have a very little ass. Um, very little ass, very little glutes. So anyone will tell you, you know, if you look at, 
you know, the most powerful sprinting horses, they've got big hindquarters, they've got big hips, big glutes, the big powerful sprinters, they've got big powerful glutes. You know, I didn't have any of those. So I, my lack of lead speed was purely due just to the design, um, you know, of my legs and of my body. It had nothing to do with me being um, overweight. And, you know, I, I played, you know, at, at 85 kilos and I naturally weighed 90. So I was, I was always very, very, very lean. Um, and it just helped me cover the ground a lot more. But, you know, I've, I've said this on record a number of times that, you know, I think the coaches felt like in between that 2010 and 11 season that losing another three kilos would have helped my leg speed. Um, even against the um, advice of our nutritionist um, and potentially in conjunction with the doctor. But, you know, I think once coaches get something, you know, in their head, they think, you know, that's, that's the only way out of it. And, you know, I was so determined at the time and I didn't want to give the coaches any excuses not to pick me. So it was just like, yep, yeah, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. And as I said, I was a very all or nothing person. So um, I just became obsessed, you know, with food. I was weighing everything. I was cutting every little piece of fat off everything. I reckon I was at the point where I was weighing myself seven or eight times a day, like before meals, after meals, before training, after training, before a walk, after walk, before bedtime. And if I was over, you know, my um, prescribed weight, which was probably about 82 kilos, um, I, it would be panic station to me. You know, so if I, it was nine o'clock at night, I'd had dinner and I weighed 83 kilos, I went off on a 10K walk. And then, you know, uh, eventually that led to, uh, you know, because I was, you know, being so strict with what I was eating that, you know, every now and again, it's like, God, I feel like a chocolate or I feel like some lollies, I feel like some junk food. And I would eat it, I would binge on that and I would go to town because I'd deprived myself of it for so long. And then I'd get the huge feelings of guilt and like, shit, what have I done? I'm going to put on weight. The coaches aren't going to pick me. And I'd be going through these ruminations in my head. And, and then I quickly learned that, you know, I was like, well, um, you know, doing more exercise is out of the question. What's a quicker way I can get this, you know, this junk food out of me? So at first I started taking laxatives. So I would take like literally a whole box of laxatives, like 50 laxatives tablets after consuming like copious amounts of junk food and then just getting like the worst stomach pain and getting the worst, you know, uh, bowel movements, whatever term you want to use, I'd be sitting basically on the toilet for the for the next day for for a good five or six hours, and you know after a while the effect of that started to wear off, and then I discovered you know uh, purging and forcing myself to throw up um, after you know after I'd had even the slightest bit of junk food, or if I had you know something that didn't quite you know align with. Um, my diet or you know something had four more grams if I looked at the box of something after eating I was like shit that's got eight grams of fat you know that's that's too much and then you know that just became a the the toxic cycle you know for me probably over the next I reckon probably four four to five years um which uh yeah wasn't the um wasn't the most ideal you know preparation for being an AFL footballer um but it was just something that I'd you know learn to live with, I guess. And again, putting my hand up and saying that I was struggling or, you know, some days that I'm, I'm not feeling good today and I'm feeling a bit low on energy. It was just like, no, just push through it. 
don't be you know don't be a weak c-u-n-t you know just yeah. just so yeah it was a um you know it was just another part you know another i guess underlying psychiatric condition that i sort of had to deal with amongst other things as well that you know just you know really you know place more burden um on me and more weight on my shoulders and so you said like obviously yeah you said there's quite a few psychiatric issues that you've had to you've had to deal with um is that what was substance abuse one of them or is that something you turned to as a as a fix that became one like was it chicken or egg kind of set up yeah no it, drugs became a part of my coping strategies after the after the effects of alcohol start um you know stopped you know helping me escape um you know my issues and again it was um you know a lot of it was linked to you know uh, my self-worth as well you know when i was doing drugs you know because i was an all or nothing person i was like you know fucking life of the party so much fun to be around you know generally got a cheer when i walked into a room to catch up with some mates like oh you know dirty's here you know party on and you know that was a real badge um of honor of me for well but you know a badge of honor for me but um you know, talking to my psychiatrist about it, you know, he was like, you, you, you're not a, you're not a drug addict. You're just a drug abuser. Um, and you know, it was just, it became part of my, my coping strategy, part of my escape strategy. And, you know, again, when I left footy, it became a really, um, pillar of, um, a pillar of sorts or source of self-worth. Um, for me because of, you know, how I was perceived or how I was, you know, welcomed, um, you know, when I was, when I was partying and, and taking drugs. So, um, but yeah, you know, again, that, and that all or nothing attitude just, you know, um, one day Bendis turned into two days, turned into three days, you know, turned into to four days and, you know, <laughs> gradually just ate away at my soul and, you know, eventually took a toll on me and, um, you know, that was, you know, a big part of, of me probably hitting rock bottom in 2019 was the, the amount of drugs and, that I was abusing up until that point. And then when you, we spoke about earlier about you hitting rock bottom and then realising it was time for a change. When you start to address that, how do you go to putting in a practice change? Because like obviously a few things going on. I mean, did you have to prioritise certain aspects of it? Were there things that you felt you had under enough control that you could focus on others? I mean, how, how, how did you go about putting in the work? Yeah, it was just about, you know, as I said before, focusing what was the source of my issue at first. So getting to the actual crux of the issue because, you know, if you're, if you're focusing on all the little sort of, uh, I guess, issues on the side, the periphery and not focusing on the core stuff, then, you know, that's all for, for nada, really. So once I got to the, you know, the, the core of my issues around my self-worth and everything else started to fall into place and it got to the point where, um, you know, I didn't even want to drink, you know, I didn't even want to do drugs. Like, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll have a couple of quiet drinks from time to time these days, but, you know, and even then I do it for more so as a, as a social thing to have a, you know, a wine with my, my wife or to have a beer, you know, with my mates to sort of bond with them. And even then it, it, it doesn't really taste, you know, that great. So it just got to a point where I was so ready just to give it all up um because i was so sick of feeling the way that i was and i was so sick of doing um what i was doing and you know i think you know before then i, I tried to make changes in my life to help me get better but i just i wasn't ready i wasn't ready to, to give it all up and 
you know, I, I guess that part of, the, of getting better is really hard for the people closest to you, you know, because unfortunately for them, you know, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to help. They're trying to get you better. But if the person that they're, they're trying to help doesn't want to get better, then it's, it's, it's all for nothing really. Like change and wanting to get better has to come from internally. It can't come from external sources. So once I got to a position where I hit rock bottom and I wanted to get better, and I wanted to address the real core of my issues. That was when I got better. Yeah, awesome, man. I think, yeah, exactly right. Addressing the source of the issue seems to be like the smartest way to go about it because then once you do that, you can expand off and tick off those little ones, as you said. Um, ra- wrapping up or heading towards the end now, man, it's been an awesome chat. But obviously, you said your self-worth isn't attached to your football anymore. Like you don't look at yourself as Brock McLean, the footballer, but if we were to, to talk about Brock McLean, the footballer, how would you kind of say what was essentially an up and down career, but now that you're not so attached to the importance of it, how does it sit with you? What you managed to achieve in your time? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I still struggle sometimes with, you know, how I perceive myself as a footballer. Like I had very high ambitions coming into the league, you know, wanted to play in a premiership and I wanted to play, you know, 200 plus games and I wanted to do all that type of stuff, but I didn't. But, you know, again, if I reframe the way that I look at my career, you know, I played for 11 years, I played over 150 games, which I think 10% of players that enter the game, you know, do that. So to be able to be in that 10% cohort, which is, you know, ideally I wanted to be above that, but that's still a, you know, still fair outcome. And, you know, I had some pretty horrific injuries, you know, during my time, I really, you know, I properly fucked my ankle, which it's it's never been the same, you know, again since then. And, you know, the, uh, you know some bad knees. And, um, you know, as I touched on before, the, the game evolved uh, to a style of game that did not suit me at all. Like, I was, I was an endurance player. So, you know, back when it was 40 rotations, I could really run out of game and, you know, but... You know, once it became that repeat effort type of game, that really didn't suit me. But I found a way to adapt and I found a way to get back into the team and, and had, you know, my last three years of my career, I, I felt really good. So, you know, I can walk away from the game. You know, as I said, I was, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, um, you know, reasons why I probably ended up finishing earlier than I wanted were my fault. Um, and I, and I realized that and I, I cop that on the chin and I can accept that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I achieved my dream, played for 10 years, um, you know, and, um, I'm very, very lucky in that sense, because, you know, as I said, not a lot of players or not a lot of people can be able to say that, you know, they're in the, in the 10% of players that played over 150 games. Nah, absolutely, man. I think from the outside at least that you've got every reason to be proud of your career and definitely proud of what you've managed to achieve outside of footy now, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and having a chat, mate. And can't wish you enough luck for July yeah. this year and hopefully yeah. it goes yeah. well. Two girls under two, mate. I'm going to need a, um, a fairly extensive man cave in the coming years, especially when, uh, yeah, the mum's going through menopause and the two girls are on the same cycle. It's going to be a, an absolute war zone in here. So. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. I'm going to need it. No, no problems, mate. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Good on you, Jake. Thanks, pal.